worthy of worship that when we have eyes to see, your blessings are 10,000-fold. And we thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. That last song we just sung and the one we'll close our service with, Amazing Grace, have both been chosen by Paul and Ali as meaningful and significant uh, to them. Uh, if you've got a Bible there, I wonder if you'd open it up to what's called Hebrews chapter 10. Don't worry if you haven't. If looking at reading a Bible is not your thing at the moment, that's fine because I'll read everything that's in there. If you'd like a Bible, Trevor, I'm sure, will be very kind to bring you one. You can just put a hand up in the air and Trevor will bring you one. There's a few folk on my left and Sue uh, with a hand up. And if you haven't got a Bible at home and you'd like one or after what we've looked at today, you'd like one, then please take one of those home uh, free of charge. Take one home so you can read one at home with you. Hebrews chapter 10, it's on page 1208, 1208, 1208. Uh, that's where we're going to start, Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I think when it comes to the Bible, for many of us, we imagine the differences between the people who first read it, because they were 2,000 years ago, the differences between the people who first read it and us today are enormous. And of course, there are some big differences. 2,000 years has seen a lot of changes in the way the world works. We could list them all, but it would take far too long, wouldn't it? Uh, and also, certainly with this one in the Bible that's called Hebrews, this section of the Bible called Hebrews, as the name suggests, it was written to people who were Jewish. And I would probably be on safe ground to suggest none of us in this room, or certainly a very small minority, have any kind of Jewish history or context or background ourselves. So then, of course there are differences. But I think it's wrong to imagine that the differences between then and them and us and now are bigger than the commonalities. I actually think what's the same about us, because we're all human beings and we're all living life, actually is far greater and outweighs what was in fact different. We've been journeying through this part of the Bible called Hebrews for uh, the best part of half a year or so. And for those of us who have been on that journey, we have met people who weren't yet Christians. It's not just written for those who believe in Jesus, whatever that might mean. It's written for, for folk who aren't there yet or are wondering about it or are anti-Jesus in some way, shape or form. And of course, some of us in this room will be in that situation. Our, our, our love for a spouse or a friend, uh, or whatever it might be, has brought us here, even though actually ourselves were quite distant from Jesus. Some, some of them were single and happily single. Some of them were less than happy single. Some of them were married and happily married, and some of them were married and less than happy with the marriage situation they were in. Some of them were in tears, some of them were in laughter. All the spectrum of life, just like us. Just like us. And so I love this little paragraph that begins in what's called Hebrews 10. The big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of sentences, helps us navigate. Chapter 10 and sentence 19. Just scan it if you've got it there. There's some wonderful words. In sentence 19 it says, we can have confidence. We can have confidence. What a word that is in all the ups and downs of life. Confidence that Jesus' way actually wasn't a mistake. That we didn't get it wrong. Sentence 22, there's a little phrase there, full assurance. It sounds something like our car insurance might say to us if we pay the premium price, isn't it? You can be fully assured, but that's an amazing idea, isn't it? In life, with all of its kind of ups and downs and all of its challenges and difficulties, all of its distractions, fully assured that actually choosing Jesus would be the best thing you could possibly, possibly do. Amazing kind of language. Uh, sentence 23, hold unswervingly a vice-like grip 
on Jesus is possible. And then sentence 25, not giving up. Do you ever feel like giving up? I do in all sorts of ways, the diet particularly, but in all sorts of ways I feel like giving up. Giving up on Jesus? There's the potential here not to have that moment, not to feel like that, though I kind of feel it's all of our experiences. And then sentence 25, the last one, encouraging one another, literally giving each other courage. I love this paragraph because it's laden with the fact that God wants us to be confident. God wants us to be assured. God wants us actually to be certain. He's not left us slightly um, stumbling in the mist, trying to see the way ahead, not really sure, have I made a right decision or have I made a bad decision? Was this a good thing to do or not? He wants us and has created the opportunity for us to be sure. The rational evidence and the emotional satisfaction of Jesus are such that assurance, confidence, certainty is possible. And the way he does that is the preceding chapters, actually in in Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9 and 10, they're all one unit. Now those of us who are regularly in church know that we normally take small sections, work episode by episode. Today we're going to take that whole unit, so take a deep breath, we're going to go quick, don't worry. We're going to take that whole unit of chapters 7, 8, 9 and 10 and we're going to see this great tsunami of information that he gives them and us which allows us to actually say, no, I can be certain, I can be confident, whatever's happening in life, I can know Jesus was the right choice. Huge swathe of evidence. It's a little bit like, let let me give you a brain break for a moment and illustrate it like this. Uh, this, I remember this story uh, singing away in the first service this morning. It came into my head as we were singing away uh, and I dropped it in this morning as well. When I was about seven, eight, nine years old, I think I was about eight years old, there I was at Edelsborough County Combined School. That was my primary school, a little village where my mum and dad still live in Buckinghamshire. Um, there I was uh, going to the summer fete, the summer fair for the school. Saturday afternoon, the sun's out, it's lovely. And the local fire station had brought their fire engine to the fete. You know how they do that, don't they? And there was a, a couple of fire women and a couple of firemen dressed up in all their kit with their oxygen tanks on and visors down and they had the fire engine there. And they got this little gaggle of us eight-year-olds, me and I guess half a dozen others, and got us all dressed up. So my mum's probably got pictures somewhere. She probably got them out when Hannah and I were dating to embarrass me, I don't know. But, you know, pictures of me in in adult-sized helmets and all that kind of stuff. And then they got four or five of the kids holding the hose, the big hose off the, you know, pretending to put out a fire, you know, standing there. And then they selected me, which was probably their first mistake, to be the person in charge of the, of the valve that switched it on. So there I am, I'm eight years old with this massive red shiny fire engine, a couple of my friends, half a dozen of my friends holding the hose pipe there. And the lady, the firewoman said to me, she said, um, just turn it one quarter counterclockwise. I was eight years old. I had no idea what one quarter counterclockwise meant. So I just did what, I, what was my approach in all of these situations. Just give it a good welly. So I just cranked this handle round about four times, right? The water, this torrent came flying down this hose pipe. These four or five kids are straight off up in the air like this. There's firemen jumping up trying to grab their feet. I'm exaggerating for effect, right? But, but you get the idea, right? This massive torrent, a tsunami of water. Well, in essence, that's what the original writer of this, of this letter, this part, Hebrews, that's what he does in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. Just this tsunami of water, this massive cascade of water. The one thing you knew when there's that much water 
that one thing you knew is every single child was drenched. Every single child was soaked, was covered. It's exactly the same thing here, actually. He makes five points. He makes five major points. One would be sufficient, but he's determined that everybody has the opportunity to be covered. Everybody has opportunity to say, no, 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 no. There is enough there for me to feel I am certain. I'm not even a Christian, but there is enough here for me to take that step and say, I can be confident. I can be fully assured. I'm not going to give up because there is, a, is enough. And what he does is he borrows from their Jewish tradition, he borrows five great realities that were important for them and shows how Jesus fulfills, surpasses, beautifies all of them. Let's take them in order. The first one is Jesus the person. If you've got a Bible there, I wonder if you turn back to chapter 7. Because basically the whole of of chapter 7 lends itself to this idea that Jesus is this perfect person. Uh, He's the perfect mediator between God and people, and people and God, and therefore no one else is needed. You need nobody else other than Jesus to meet with God. Let me read a couple of sentences from chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, sentence 23 to 25. Page 1206, top left-hand column. Don't worry about the language you don't understand. We're looking for the main thing. It says this. Now there have been many of these human priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In their minds, then, the priest was the special person who stood between God and everybody else. And if you wanted to meet with God, you had to access God through this priest. You notice it said that there was many of these human priests because inevitably they, they die. That is, last time I checked, the death rate still hovers around 100%, doesn't it? You know, they all die and need to be replaced. But it says actually Jesus, because he defeated death, there's a whole other conversation there, but because he defeated death, he is forever in this role, always there. The only person you now need to meet with God is Jesus. If you meet Jesus, you meet God. I mean, that is a remarkable and incredible claim, isn't it? And it's all recorded here in the Bible. You can meet Jesus fully and completely here. See, what it means is very lovingly and carefully, but clearly we need to talk to our our friends and our brothers and sisters who come from the Catholic tradition, which is a number of us. And I deliberately call them brothers and sisters. Spiritually, they most definitely are. But those who come from a Catholic tradition and help them realise that they don't need a priest to absolve their sins. It's very useful to confess our sins to one another, as the Bible puts it, and help each other. Uh, Paul alluded to the smaller group they're they're part of. It's a really helpful way to do that, to help each other to do that. But you don't need a special person, a, a Catholic priest, who alone can absolve you. No, Jesus is all you need. It means we we rightly should try and talk to our Hindu neighbours and friends and work colleagues that actually they can be freed from the idea that their blessing in this life is determined by how good their previous incarnation was. That they're reliant on their previous incarnated life form. And if that previous life was good and moral and right, 
then God will bless them in this life. No, they do not need someone else to meet with God. Even a a, a perceived pre-existence, they don't need it. Jesus is totally sufficient. How liberating is that? And for those of us who, for all sorts of reasons, probably complicated, and our friends and our family members who who go to clairvoyant mediums because actually we, we feel we need that way to engage with the other side. No, 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 no. Not only is that extremely unhelpful for all sorts of reasons that I'd love to talk to you about and highly manipulative and takes your money, but it's just not needed. Jesus is totally sufficient. He is the only person who stands between God and people and people and God. He alone is needed. Wonderfully freeing. So you can be certain. You can be sure. Let's take the second one. First of all, it was the person. Secondly, it's the place. Now, this is the beginning of chapter 8, just really a paragraph of chapter 8, sentences 1 to 5, where he talks about the the place. Now, in their thought at the time, these Jewish people that he's writing to, the special place where God could only be met was the temple. The only place you could meet with God was the temple. Nowhere else could you, only in the temple. And if you couldn't get to the temple, then maybe your local synagogue was a good second best. But you had to go to a particular special place. Look where the temple now is. Look at chapter 8 and sentence 2. It says, Jesus, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, there are other words for temple, set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Where is it? Sentence five. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Jesus has set up now this this perfect meeting place with God, ultimately in heaven where there'll be no barriers at all, and that means there is no meeting place on earth that is required. The temple has moved up there in this unique forever place. So now, actually, you can meet with God anywhere anywhere. You don't need to go to a certain place at a certain time or be a certain type of person. All the priests in the Old Testament had to be men, for example, and and a woman, just by being a woman, couldn't engage with God fully. All of that is gone. You can meet with God as you do the washing up. In fact, he's already there. Emmanuel, that great Christmas name for Jesus, Emmanuel literally means God with us. He's come to us, so we don't have to go to him. You see the difference? He has come to us, so we do not have to go to him. When you do the washing up, when you say your prayers during the day, when you go to your small group, when you're arguing with your husband, when you're challenged by the kids, all of these places you can meet with God. There is no need for some great pilgrimage to Mecca or Stonehenge to meet with the divine and have your spiritual experience. And actually, it helps us understand why we meet like this. We don't meet like this to meet with God. We do meet with God when we meet like this, but not in a way that we couldn't meet with him anywhere else. The main reason we meet together like this is to be fueled and fed by God through his word, by his spirit, to live for him in the rest of the week. That's actually the main reason we meet here. That God would feed us and fuel us and send us out into the week ahead. There's not a uniqueness about this. So we can't meet with God at another time. So you can be sure. 
Let's hit the third one. First, the person. Second, the place. Thirdly, the promise. The promise. So the whole now of chapter 8, and you can see it there if you want to have a look, is given over to this idea that God is a promise-giving God. God loves to give promises. In here, it's the language is the covenant, which is not language we particularly use nowadays. Promise is probably more helpful for us. But a covenant in their mind was, was more binding than a legal contract, but more tender and loving than a family commitment. It brought those two things together. The, the, the certainty of a legal contract, the binding nature of a legal contract, but the gentleness and tenderness of a family commitment were found in a a covenant. It's, promise is a good word for it in our kind of understanding of language. And historically for them, that promise of God was external and inaccessible. Most famously, Moses got the Ten Commandments, which were written on blocks of wood and then put inside something called the Ark, which was like an ancient safe with a key code that no one could access. So these promises of God, beautiful and wonderful and amazing, were external and inaccessible. You couldn't get to them. Look what Jesus does with the promise of God. Look at sentence 10 and 11 of chapter 8. Look at sentence 10 and 11. This is the covenant, the, the promise, I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see the difference? Instead of this locked box that no one could access or get into, tucked away where no one could get to it, suddenly these great promises of God suddenly are so accessible, they're where? In your mind and written on your heart. How close and tender and available and accessible is that? Those promises of God are now suddenly available for all people everywhere. Let me give you another brain break for a moment and take you back a couple of weeks. Um, uh, two or three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I spent the week at Keele University and the Christian Union of Students there had arranged a week of events to try and introduce their friends to who Jesus was. So at lunchtime, each lunchtime, there was a, what they called a lunch bar where students could come and have a free lunch and there was an hour-long debate around a particular big issue in life. We, we dealt with science and we dealt with suffering and we dealt with the credibility of the Bible and we dealt with sexuality and all sorts of things to come and hear a, a Bible worldview on these topics. And then in the evenings, there was other events that were going on. And as an aside, it was a great, it was an interesting week for me because midway through the week, I remember saying to Hannah in an emotional outburst that I sometimes have, I'm done with students, I can't take students anymore, they can't organise anything. By the end of the week, I was like, this is the greatest thing ever, I should just, just quit leading a church and go spend all my time with students. So I'm a little bit of an emotional guy at times, right? It was quite an intense week. It started on the Monday where they'd had this lunch bar, the first event. They'd catered for 120, that's what they thought might come, 120 rolls and crisps and whatever. They had 850 students turn up, 850 students turn up. And the week kind of progressed like that. And then uh, the final event on Friday night, um, uh, which was a meal, and, and also they, they changed to be, oh, you could only come if you intended on becoming a Christian. So they changed the Friday night and said, actually, only if you're intending, if you feel that you might take that step and you just need a few more bits of information or some questions aren't, but you feel that's where you're heading, then you can only come. Don't just come because you want a free curry or whatever. Because um, you know what students are like. 
Um, uh, and, and they ended up having to put more tables out for that event, you know, as, as, as folk came. It was brilliant. But do you know the one question I was asked more than any other in that week? Why is Christianity so exclusive? Why is Christianity so exclusive? You know, you say actually Jesus is the only way and everyone else is wrong and all that kind of stuff. I've actually never heard a Christian say that myself. But you see, there's a deep flaw in the very question. The answer will be wrong because the question is wrong. Because actually Christianity is the most inclusive of all the world religions. Every other world religion has some kind of caveat, some reason why somebody could never join it. So some, for example, would say there are acts, there are crimes that you can do as an individual, which means you could never join their religion. You are excluded. However you feel about them, however remorseful you are, regretful, however much you change your ways, just because you have done that, there is no way that you can, you can be part of that religion. Others will say that actually through us you can only know God truly if, if the holy book, their holy book, you can read it in the original language that it was written. And if you can't, you can't access God fully. Now I have incredible respect for friends and, and viewpoints of other religions. I enjoy enormously understanding it better. My postgraduate studies are in comparative religion because it was something that interested me so much. My Christian faith is based on a rigorous review of the options out there. But it comes down to the bottom line that the promise that comes from the God of the Bible is given to you. It's written on your heart and your mind. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your past, present or future, whatever your sexual orientation or practice, whatever your spiritual life prior to this point has been, whatever crimes committed to you or against you, you have experienced, it is for you. Christianity is the most inclusive religion, worldview, community the world has ever seen, and it will always be, because the promise is given to you. The person, Jesus, the one way to engage with God. The place, the temple, lifted to heaven so you can meet with God wherever you are. Three, we've just looked at it. The promise from external to internal, from inaccessible to available. You can be sure Jesus was the right way. You have not made a mistake. Number four, penultimately, we'll pick up pace on this one. I've called the praise, partly to keep the alliteration going, the praise. All of chapter nine is about worship and how accessible worship is. Again, in their mind, worship could only occur in a particular way at a certain time and in no other way at all. It was limited, it was ring-fenced to one moment in the week, and the rest of the week wasn't really worshipping God. You were disconnected from God for the rest of the week. Look, uh, let's just take one sentence. Look at sentence 14. Chapter 9, sentence 14. It says this, How much more, then, will the blood of Christ... He's contrasting it with the blood of animals that was the tradition of the time. How much more will the death of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, don't worry about that language, we'll explore that in future weeks. Then it says, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God. The word serve and the word worship in the original are the same word. It can mean the same thing. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying because of Jesus, suddenly worship becomes 
any moment you are serving, any moment where you are serving in life is now authentically worshipping God. Any horizontal act of service out is worship vertically of God. Suddenly worship becomes everything. So when you're intervening between your six-year-old and your eight-year-old as they WWF each other over what TV program to watch, and you're serving them, you are worshipping Jesus as you do that. When you roll over in bed to face your husband, even though you are knackered and it's the last thing on your mind, you are worshipping God. Because you are serving. When you change that nappy, when you build your career in a way that honours Jesus, when you type on the computer, when you reach out to a neighbour in need, you are worshipping. Do you see how remarkably liberating that is? when those little hands are tugging away at you and driving you crazy and somehow you swallow back the anger and reach down and love them again, you are worshipping. Every horizontal act of service is now a vertical act of worship. That's why Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 12, what's the great way of living? What's the great way of living? He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. The vertical and horizontal are totally connected. Whenever we serve, we worship. Fantastic that, isn't it? Fantastic. As a little aside, this was a huge eye-opener for me. Uh, When I became a Christian playing rugby, I mean, not literally playing rugby, fell on my knees, that I, was, I was big into rugby, and I thought there was no way you could be a Christian and a rugby player. I just thought that was absolutely impossible, could not happen at all. And someone sat me down and said, uh, uh, actually, Alex, the way Jesus has liberated worship is if you are using who God has made you to serve others, then you are worshipping Jesus. And that includes, Alex, hitting that tackle against your opponent centre with every ounce of strength and gusto and taking him out with blood and bruises, with everything you are, just nailing him because actually you serve him to become a better player by hitting him that hard, right? (laughs) But it's true. It's true. The guy who's explaining this to me is Welsh. His name's Graham Daniels. He's a Welsh guy. And he said to me, I'm not going to do a Welsh accent. That would just be so shameful. You wouldn't understand what I was saying. But he said, did you know what the word competitive means in the original Latin? I'm like, yes, so I study geography. Of course I do. Right? But he, I said, what? He, it, it means the word competitive. Com means to, together. Petition means to strive. The word competition means to strive together for excellence. The more competitive I was, could be on the rugby field, striving together, the harder I hit the tackles, the Harris world-famous shimmy round on the wing, right? Yeah, still got it, right? Yeah. I was worshipping as I served. Do you see? Worshipping as I serve. Worshipping as I serve. Last and finally, the reason, this great tsunami of reasons why we can be certain and confident and sure why this morning you could take a step towards Jesus and choose to follow him with confidence and certainty why whatever situation you're living in right now whatever doubts creep in whatever questions of what God is doing you can say no I can be sure I can be confident I cannot give up I can keep going I can encourage others the final reason is that is the price that Jesus has paid it's the first half of chapter 10 And it's that the price that Jesus has paid, Jesus' death on the cross, is totally, completely 
and fully sufficient. Look with me at one sentence, if you would. Sentence 10. Chapter 10, sentence 10. Last one, it says this. It says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you see that little phrase there? Once for all. The sufficiency of Jesus' death means it is once for all. That means one person for all other people. It means once in history, for all of time. The price is totally, completely and entirely sufficient. Nothing else is needed. He's building on Jesus' very last words. We're coming into land now. The very last words that Jesus says. Jesus reserved intentionally his last breath for the words, it is finished. It's in John 19, sentence 30. It is finished. The word literally has been found in three different ways in archaeological digs of the time. One, it's been found on a a massive barrel of beer, drained and empty. The rugby lads must have got hold of it, right? A massive barrel, drained and empty, and someone stamped on it. It is finished. Not a drop left. It is finished. Nothing else in there. It's been found on a building contractor's invoice. At the end of a build, when every brick and every tile and every window pane has gone into the construction and the contractor gives to the owner of the property the final invoice, it is finished. Not a brick is needed now. Nothing is needed. It is done. And lastly, it's been found on a bank statement at the end of a 25-year mortgage. Month by month by month by month, that contribution has been made. And after 25 years, the bank writes to you for one last time to say, it is finished. The house is yours. Nothing else needs to be paid. So friends, wherever you are on the spiritual journey, whatever your thoughts are, whatever life is like, and for some it will be good and some it will be bad and some it will be ugly and most of us it will kind of be a mix of all of those things, choosing to follow Jesus comes with certainty. You can be sure you made the right choice. You can be sure that you are making the right choice. Because one, the person, Jesus, the only mediator between God and people. Two, the place, the temple, lifted to heaven so you can meet with God wherever you are today. You don't need to go somewhere special. Three, the promise that actually that has moved from hidden and external and inaccessible to for you, whoever you might be, that promise is ready for you. Fourth, the praise, that suddenly worship becomes all of life, becomes the horizontal as we love, care, serve, and are courageous for others. It is worship of the vertical, of God. And fifth, the sufficiency of the price, fully, totally, entirely, completely paid. You are free. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are and for what you have done. I thank you because of you, your identity and mission 